The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, January 26th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you get settled, get your Bible. Make your way to 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. One of the blessings of of having three services is that by the third service you learn what you've said that works and doesn't work. So as a gift to you, my witty introduction did not work this morning. So we're going to skip it. We're going to go straight to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, we, we are going to get, I'll at least give you this, we are, we are going to get the, the highlight moment in Saul's kingship. We're going to be with Saul through the rest of 1 Samuel. But from this point forward, it's not going to go well for Saul. But it goes well here this morning. And understanding what goes well for Saul this morning is going to be a key to understanding how 1 Samuel chapter 11 impacts our life today as God's people in the 21st century. So that's the witty introduction. 1 Samuel chapter 11, start in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, no shortage of tongue twisters, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. All right, so here's our setting. Now, there is a lot of backstory to what's going on right here. So I need to give you some of the backstory for you to be able to read the rest of the story like a human and understand what's happening and feel what's happening and why some of the responses are going to come that are going to come. So Jabesh Gilead is a region of the promised land that is on the east side of the Jordan. So at this point in the life of God's people, if you've been with us, you might remember, we're kind of in that period of transition from the period of the judges to the period of the kingship. And in the period of the judges, really all the period in the promised land prior to the kingship, God's people have been fairly disunified. They're scattered around the land in places by their tribes. They they aren't unified by a king or by a particular leader. They're separated from each other geographically. They're even separated from each other socially at times. And Jabesh Gilead is on the eastern side of the river, northern part of the land. The other tribes, the majority of them live on the western side of the river, north and south all throughout the land. But there's another thing about Jabesh that plays a role in the story. If you've been with us, you might remember, we've mentioned a few times this tremendous atrocity that occurred back in the period of the judges, in Judges chapter 19 in the tribe of Benjamin. This, this act, this atrocity that was so heinous that the rest of the tribes of Israel all banded together to wipe Benjamin off the map. A civil war broke out amongst God's people, Benjamin nearly being taken out. It's in Judges 19 and 20 and 21. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead did not join the rest of the Israelites to go to war against Benjamin. They played the role of Switzerland in that battle. They didn't commit to it. So when the Israelites inflicted their punishment on Benjamin, nearly wiping out the entire tribe, killing the majority of the men, as a punishment to Jabesh for not getting involved, they took 400 of the unmarried women of Jabesh, gave them to the tribe of Benjamin for the remaining men that weren't killed in that civil war. And it's from that point the tribe of Benjamin began to grow. They were now a blend of the tribe of Jabesh and the tribe of Benjamin. This is going to be in the land of Saul in Gibeah. This is 
the people of Jabesh and Jabesh-Gilead. There's also backstory, though, with the Ammonites, this, this King Nahash and the people that he's leading. If you're familiar with the story of God's people up to this point, you might remember that after God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and he's leading them through the wilderness to this promised land, the very first people to attack the Israelites in the wilderness were the Ammonites. Contrary to a word that was given to them, directing them to provide provisions for God's people going through the wilderness, they refused to help. Now the reason they had such animosity against the Israelites is what's important. Do you know where the Ammonites descended from? Come on, Bible scholars. That's right. The Ammonites descended, you can go read this in Genesis, from an illicit relationship, incident, not even a relationship, incident between Lot and his daughter. The child of that incident was the father of the Ammonites. Ever since that moment, there has been generational animosity between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So the Ammonites and their king, Nahash, are on the eastern edge of the border of Israel, pressing in and threatening to occupy and take over that territory. Meanwhile, we've already learned last week over here in the west, in the land of Benjamin, in Gibeah, the Philistines have already taken land. So Israel is being pressed from the east and the west. That's what's happening here. And Nahash, the Ammonite king, is threatening now to not just occupy territory, but he's threatening to gouge out the eyes of the men of Jabesh. And that seems kind of weird. But there's something that occurred between chapter 10 and chapter 11 that history has recorded for us. It's recorded in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Josephus actually recorded it in his work. And it was this. It's Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously. They're on the east too gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained, whose right eyes Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered Jabesh-Gilead. These are the men we're reading about now in chapter 11. And Nahash was threatening to gouge their eyes out. And as strange as that sounds to us, there was a logic behind it back then. This was one of the most terror-inducing acts that a king could do to a people when he came into their land. For one, it rendered all the men whose right eyes were gouged out unacceptable and unavailable to serve in the military. See, back then, the way they would line up in formations, their shields would kind of cross over to form that wall together in their formation. Well, it would cover over their left eye so that they could see and fight with their right eye. If their right eyes were gouged out, they could not see when they would go to battle so they couldn't serve. But it was a terrorizing act that would come upon the people, rendering them helpless ultimately. But the writer gives us a little more indication for what was under the surface. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, uh, people with such hostility and animosity towards the Israelites. He, he ultimately wants to bring disgrace on God's people. That's what he's after. And in response to this, the men of Jabesh go to Nahash and they say, let's make a deal. And the treaty they propose is, a, is the language of a covenant. Behind this treaty is the offer to serve Nahash as their king. So the people of Israel, of Jabesh-Gilead, who were just part of the process back in chapter 10 of bringing Saul in front of the people and them proclaiming him as their king, these people are now willing to make a treaty with Nahash, a king of the nations, for him to be their king. 
The men of Jabesh Gilead are not prepared to die for the Lord, but in their heart, they are willing to serve this foreign king. You've got to understand, this is a low point for Israel. The world is dictating terms to God's people, and what we see is them being willing to bow down to the world's demands. I'm not going to jump into how we consider this story for our life now. We'll get there in a little bit, but even from the setting, you, you can tell that the pressures that God's people face even today are not much different. There is indeed a culture that we live in that is bent on disgracing God and his people and is threatening God's people with all manners of terms and demands for how we're supposed to live. And like the people of Israel and the people of Jabesh, we have to ask ourselves, are we at heart ready to bow down to those demands? When the world says jump, are we wanting to say how high to make you happy? Are we ready to cut a deal to bend our knee This is what Israel was facing, the people of Jabesh in particular. And so in verse three, when the story picks back up, the elders of Jabesh said to Nahash, give us seven days respite that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. So they're thinking in their mind, maybe somewhere out there, somewhere in all of Israel, there might just be someone who can go before us. And they don't seem to have any particular thoughts of the brand new king that God just gave them, the one they demanded, who would go before them and fight their battles. And Nahash's willingness to let them have these seven days is just an example of how confident he was that even if seven days came, they still wouldn't find anybody to help them. And so in verse four, the messengers are sent out. And as the messengers go out and they cross the Jordan and they go to all the territories of the promised land, they come to Gibeah of Saul. Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and the tribe of Benjamin. They reported the matter in the ears of all the people, and all the people wept aloud. So when the messengers go out with the news of what's happening, of course, they go straight to the king, right? Nope. They find themselves in his town, but they don't go to him. They go to the people. And what do the people do? They go straight to Saul, right? I mean, the king of Israel is our man. When they hear the news, they're going to go right to Saul and get him, right? Nope, they just cry. Understandably, remember the generational history between Jabesh and Gibeah and Benjamin? These were their people. But no one seems to be thinking about Saul. No one seems to be considering the the king they so desperately craved. So verse 5, the writer says, while the people are crying... Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. There's your king. Coming up from the field behind dad's ox. See, back in chapter 10, after they proclaimed him king, Samuel told all the people who had gathered there at Mitzvah for the ceremony to go back home. That included Saul. He had no palace. He had no cabinet. He had no advisors. He had no army. And there was no precedent for this kind of king in Israel. So Saul did, like everyone else, he went back home. And in the time between chapter 10 and chapter 11, Saul had to go back to doing Saul home things, finding donkeys and plowing fields. So he's back there plowing fields with dad's ox. And you've got to wonder at some point in the time between 10 and 11, at some point out there in the field trying to fight these ox that don't seem to want to obey, he's got to be wondering, was there any significance at all to what had happened back there at Mitzvah? Here I am still doing the same things. 
And as he gets done, he, he comes up and he sees the people. And Saul says, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? No one's gone to find him to tell him. So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And now the king has heard the news. How is the king going to respond? That man from the least of the tribes, that man who seemed to struggle with the assurance of God's word to him that God had given him through those signs, not following up on God's direct instruction to him, Philistine still living in his hometown because of it, the guy that seems to wrestle with a level of insecurity that would find him hiding in the baggage at his own coronation. At the end of chapter 10, we didn't read it last week, you can go back and read it this week. Even after they said, long live, the, this is our king, long live the king, this is the king. There were some in verse 27, these worthless fellows who, who doubted him then, saying, how can this man save us? We wanted a king like the nation's. We wanted a guy with his own armies and his own power. How can this guy save us? This guy who's supposed to be under the authority of God's word as Samuel had laid it out. How can this king save us if he always has to wait on a word from our God? That's not what we wanted. And so here he is. Underestimated, unexpected, insecure. How's he going to respond? Is this going to be his moment? And so verse six, the writer tells us, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. This is the language of the period of the judges. It's not gonna be until verse 15 of the chapter that the people finally make him king. The writer is helping us to see that even at this point in this transition, Saul is gonna act here as the judges of old. This is the language of the spirit rushing upon men like Samson. Up to this point, Saul's still been content with the Philistines living in his own hometown. But now, through the empowering work of God's Holy Spirit, Saul is sharing the righteous anger of God at the offense is being done to his people inside the borders of his land. One writer would say the capacity to share in God's righteous anger at injustice is a gift of his grace. And we're going to talk a lot more about that later. But right now in this story, we're just getting a glimpse of the difference the Spirit of God makes. How he can take an insecure farmer from the least of the tribes and empower him to go before God's people. Shades of what the Apostle Paul will later remind the church in Corinth that not many of us were wise. Not many of us, look around the room, were influential. But God chose what was foolish to shame the wise. What was weak to shame the strong. So that no one has a space to boast before him. The spirit of God has rushed upon Saul now. God's righteous anger against sin and injustice is kindled in Saul. So verse seven, Saul takes a yoke of oxen and cuts them in pieces and he sends them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. And again, shades of the judges, except this time it's oxen being cut up not people. But the most important thing happening here, just pay attention, is that Saul is calling the people to go out with him alongside Samuel. The king is going with God's word. At this point, he is not a king like the nations. Saul is not going to act and not going to lead contrary to God's word. He is going in concert with God's word. 
And so the writer says at that point, the fear of the Lord, the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. Now John Woodhouse in writing about this says, don't be confused, there was nothing heroic in this. It wasn't noble or virtuous. Just as Saul's rage was inspired by God's spirit, so the people's response to Saul was brought about by the hand of God upon them. The same spirit that prepared Saul in that moment is the same spirit that prepared the people to hear Saul's words. And so in verse eight, when Saul mustered them at Bezek, now that means brings them together, okay? That's not condiment there, that's he brings them together. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And so when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh this news, they were glad. Now it's just a, a fun observation. The busiest people so far in the story are the messengers. They've been sent all around. But this time they're being sent not with pieces of oxen. They're being sent with news of deliverance. They're being sent with news of salvation. They're being sent with news of gospel, good news for God's people. So in hearing the news in verse 10, the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, now they're going to go back to Nahash, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do whatever seems good to you. Now, I have to believe, and maybe I'll be corrected in heaven, but I have to believe that after 1 Samuel was written, and every time it would be read as God's people would gather, I have to believe at this point is when they would laugh. You know, the reading of, the, of God's word when God's people would gather in the, in the temple and the tabernacle, it was an interactive thing. And I have to believe that this is the point in which they would laugh, because read it like a human. Nahash doesn't know what's happened to Saul. He doesn't know anything about Saul. All he knows is that this little tribe of people have gone off to try to find somebody who's going to deliver them from his hand. No one has delivered anybody from his hand. Now they've come back and said, hey, tomorrow we're going to come back and you just do whatever seems best to you. We're going to give ourselves over to you. He knows nothing about what's been happening. It's a clever little ruse on their part. Nahash is going to go to bed that night really confident. Nahash's men are going to go to bed that night really confident, not expecting what's about to happen. So in verse 11, the next day Saul put the people in three companies, shades again of Gideon. Go back and read it this week through the lens of the judges. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch. That's between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So all these men in these three companies, they had to cross the Jordan from the west to the east, coming into the camp of the Ammonites from three different directions, completely enclosing it from that side. And they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, around noon to three. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And there's a picture there in the way he wrote it. In the power of God's spirit, in the fear of the Lord, God's people come together and go out as one man. And in the power of his spirit, going out as one man in the fear of the Lord against the enemies of God, the enemies of God end up scattering no one together. This is the picture that the writer is trying to give you through this battle. But look what happened in verse 12. Natural. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we might put them to death. I mean, they're ready to swing some swords. They've been victorious. Saul was the leader. Saul was the king. Who was it that said this man couldn't save us? Let's kill them too. Where are those worthless fellows? Where are those guys who say, can this man save us? Bring him over here. 
Well, you've got to read it like a human. Go back and read the story. Did anyone at any point in this story at all consider Saul? Sure, the worthless fellows back there in chapter 10 doubted. But in this chapter, no one thought to go get Saul. The messengers of the men of Jabesh went throughout the land not thinking, let's go get the king. They come to Saul's hometown. They don't go get the king. They tell Saul's people, they don't go get the king. No one seems to be thinking Saul can do anything about what's going on. Everyone seems to be underestimating Saul. But like is so common in all of our hearts here, on the other side of this victory, they're ready to shift the blame. But verse 13, all of it leads to this. Verse 13, this is Saul's highlight. This is the highest point in Saul's kingship. It's right here. He peaks early. It goes downhill for the rest of the book. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Sure, the grace that Saul has shown to those who opposed him was impressive, but what's most impressive is that when victory has come, when salvation has come, when deliverance has come, Saul directs the praises and the hearts of God's people to the true hero of the battle, the Lord himself. The one who Samuel has reminded God's people over and over again as they have sought to reject God as their king. Your God is the one who saves you over and over again from all of your calamities. Three times Samuel's already told them this. Your God is the one who saves you from all of your calamities. And here is Saul on the other side of this victory, his first battle now as the king of Israel, reminding God's people, it wasn't me. I didn't do this. Today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Deliverance has come not because you have a king, but because your king has God's spirit. You see, it wasn't the kingship that Israel needed the most. That's what their heart craved, and it craved it for the wrong reasons. It's not what they needed most. What they needed most was the power of the Spirit of God. Friends, understanding what's happening right here in this story, it is the theological key that unlocks the entirety of the story. Go back this week and read it. We don't have time to do it this morning. Three times throughout chapter 11, The same word used for salvation or deliverance is used in this story in the form of writing that would lead you to listen or read and ask, is anyone capable of delivering? Will salvation come? Will deliverance come? And then go back and read it this week with the theological understanding and let the gravity of it press in on your heart, knowing that Nahash's name means serpent. Saul has been the one raised up by God to lead his people into battle with the serpent. Would he crush his head? Would God's people be delivered? And here in the highest point of his entire kingship, Saul reminds God's people as it has always been and continues to be even now for us, it is God who has worked salvation. It is God who has worked deliverance for his people in spite of themselves. He alone is there and our only true hope. And it's at this point in the story that you and I have a moment to stop and begin to ask the bigger question of how a story like this, this battle story in the Old Testament, 
This people that Ammonites, the Israelites, Jabesh, all these things. How does all that have any impact at all on the life that you and I live today in the 21st century as followers of Jesus? What sense can we make of this story at all today for our lives? Lest it just be history. It starts by realizing that the day that God triumphed through Saul and Jabesh, delivering his people from the tyranny of an oppressive enemy, it's just a microcosm of the victory that God would win for us through Jesus, our true king on the cross through his resurrection when he conquered Satan's sin and death itself. Why the writer of Hebrews could say in Hebrews 7, consequently, because of the life he lived in our place and the death he died for our sins and of God's receiving him and raising him from the dead, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Saul was the king the people asked for. That's what we've learned. But Saul was simply a precursor to the king that we all need. 1 Samuel chapter 11, the story of this battle and all these different things that are happening, it, it serves you and I today to give us a framework, a language, a, a paradigm for the battle that you and I now wage as disciples of King Jesus, the one who has won the decisive victory over Satan's sin and death. I, I don't know if you've realized it or not, but the New Testament is loaded with the language and the imagery of war and battle. And honestly, again, if we're honest about it, over the last few decades, the church at large has become pretty uncomfortable with that language. And it's somewhat understandable given the day and the age in which we live. You and I have, have never in our lifetime up to this day seen such acts of religious terrorism as we read about in the news today. So reading of these battles and reading of these wars and, and reading of this language, even in the New Testament, it can become uncomfortable. But it's uncomfortable up until the point that we realize that our battle is not waged against flesh and blood, but our battle is against powers and principalities that seek to exalt themselves against King Jesus. Powers and principalities like Nahash, eager to disgrace and destroy God's people. As one commentator would say, Nahash might become historical furniture, but the Ammonite mind, that is the mind to maim and destroy and strangle God's people is always with us. It's important for you and I to remember, and I'll say it multiple times in the rest of the morning, we are not like Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 11. The church is not a geopolitical nation state that goes to battle against other nations. But our war is no less real than the battle in 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's part of the point. It's no less deadly and it's no less dangerous. The cause of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom through the church today cannot and never will be advanced through literal, physical violence on our part. Any more than, as Paul said, it will ever be advanced by cunning and disgraceful and underhanded ways. But make no mistake, if you hear nothing else, you've got to hear this. Make no mistake, the proclamation of the gospel the proclamation of the victory of Jesus over Satan's sin and death is a declaration of war against Satan and all of his works. When we are sharing the gospel, when we are proclaiming the gospel with those that have never heard it, when we are proclaiming the gospel with one another going through different trials in our life, when we are proclaiming the gospel to our own hearts, we are going to battle. 1 Samuel chapter 11 offers us as the church an opportunity to ask ourselves, when was the last time we thought 
of our encouragement of each other in the gospel, of our proclamation of the gospel to those who have never heard it? When was the last time we considered it an act of battle? John Woodhouse, in considering this question with the church, wrote this, and in many ways today the business world has replaced the battlefield as a source of categories for thinking about gospel work. Gospel work then is not, gospel work is then not war, but commerce. We go to sell a product, not fight a battle. We become marketers, not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not an enemy. We're out to expand our market share and increase our customer base, not to capture, defeat, and destroy a foe. We form a business plan and not a battle plan. The conflict we face arises from the competition in the marketplace of ideas where our product is not the only one offered rather than a hostile wile of an enemy out to destroy our heart. The language of war and weapons and battle is too extreme for the way we think about evangelism. We're more like advertisers than fighters. He goes on to say, if this description is approximately correct, then we need to think again. We need to allow God's word to show us what we are indeed engaged in. If we're uncomfortable with the battle language, it may well be because we're not seeing the task before us as clearly as we must. Yes and amen, I am as guilty of that as anyone in this room. But it's this very reminder that helps us to see that our challenge is not to present the gospel as the most appealing product to a consumer world. You and I cannot sell the gospel to people who are blind to it and hostile to it. This is what Paul reminds the church in 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We are engaged in a battle. But praise be to God, he has given us everything we need, all the weapons that are necessary. He has given us by grace through faith in Christ, bold access to him through prayer and the very sword of his spirit, which is his word. Which is why Paul would later write to that same church and say, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have a divine power. And here's what our war looks like to destroy strongholds, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Again, the, the church, the, the kingdom of Jesus, it's not like Israel in 1 Samuel 11. We're not a geopolitical state. There is no holy land whose borders we're trying to maintain. America is not the holy land. The whole earth belongs to this king. And now on this side of his victory, he sends us out as as his people proclaiming, as messengers proclaiming the good news of his victory. And as we go, we go with the sword of his spirit to proclaim the good news of his victory and put to death the consciences of men and women and the arguments and the strongholds and the ideas and the worldviews that exalt themselves against Jesus. But make no mistake, it's real. The battle is real. It's not imaginary. It's not a game. It's not a philosophical category. God forbid it's not a hobby. I mean, if this is a hobby to you, it is the worst hobby you could ever pick. It's a battle and it's real. Because the enemy is real. 
There is an enemy to the heart of God's people that is hostile to God, hostile to his purposes, hostile to his people, who employs his own weapons of temptation and sin and pride and greed and ignorance and so on. Friends, when was the last time you you realized and understood in your mind that proclaiming the gospel even to your own heart is an act of battle? Do you believe this? Is your spiritual life this serious to you? It's not a game. Hearts and lives are at stake, including your own. The thing is, I fear that that too many of us have have lost a proper respect, not just for the battle, but for our enemy. Those of you that have served in the military know that the minute you lose a proper respect for your enemy is the minute that you set yourself up for defeat. That's why Peter would remind the church that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Therefore, he says, be sober-minded and watchful. Resist him, firm in your faith. Paul reminds the church in Colossae to see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. When we lose proper respect for the enemy of our souls in the battle that we're engaged in, we begin to make space and open up the borders of our own heart for the very one that wants to defeat us to come in. Like Israel, have you you longed so much to fit in that you've opened up your heart to the very enemy of your soul? Has your respect for the enemy of your heart so diminished that you've begun even making certain sins respectable in your mind. As I thought about it this week, I began to think that maybe it's this lack of respect that we've lost for the battle that we're in, or maybe the lack of an awareness for the battle that we're in, which correlates with a lack of respect for the enemy of our souls that leads us to read stories like 1 Samuel chapter 11 and come to the place where the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul and the righteous anger of God against sin is kindled in Saul's heart, and we read that and we feel disconnected from what's happening. We feel disconnected from this sense of righteous indignation about what's happening. It it seems foreign to our hearts and foreign to our lives. Maybe we've gotten so captivated by the world that we live in that we're no longer good and angry like God is. The righteous indignation of God and the righteous anger of God is something we just don't talk about anymore, which is why I'm so thankful that a man named Paul Tripp has written what I think is the best work on that one topic the gift of sharing in God's righteous anger. It's called being good and angry. And if you'll, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, I, I want to read some of it to you. Not just a sentence, I want to read a little bit to you, okay? Tripp says, you can't look at this world with the eyes of truth and with a heart committed to what God says is right and good and not be angry at the state of things in a fallen world. In a fallen world, anger is a good thing. In a fallen world, anger is a constructive thing. In a fallen world, anger is an essential thing. That is, if the anger is about something bigger than you. Perhaps our problem regarding anger is not just that we're often angry for the wrong reasons, but that we're not angry often enough for the right reasons. Perhaps our problem is that the things that should make us angry and thereby move us to action just don't make us angry anymore. So we get used to all the political corruption. We get used to all the homelessness. We get used to everything Joel tells us up here about exploitation. We get used to our own complacency. We get used to our own hypocrisy. We get used to a world that's been broken by sin. 
We develop the sad capacity to not care anymore about things that should break our hearts and rile our anger. We lose our moral edge and don't even realize it. Things that God says are not okay become okay to us. When we lose a proper awareness of the battle we're in and the respect for the enemy of our souls, this is what happens. Tripp says we lose our ability and our commitment to be good and angry at the same time. Now indulge me for a little bit more, is that okay? Righteous anger, he says, is not optional. It's a calling for people who claim to be living for something bigger than their own happiness and who profess to do what's right, true, loving, and good. You can't be like God and be free of anger as long as you live in a sin-broken world. The righteous anger of God causes you to love God's grace and to do all that you can to proclaim that grace to others knowing that it's only this grace that has the power to fix all those broken things that rightfully rile you up every day. Suffering can no longer be okay with you. And he goes on to list all the things that we become okay with. I'll skip for time. Righteous anger should yank you out of selfish passivity. Righteous anger should call you to join God's revolution of grace. It should propel you to do anything you can to lift the load of people suffering through the zealous ministry of the gospel of Jesus and to bring them into the freedom of God's truth. Sound good? Well, what's it actually look like? What does righteous indignation in the hearts and lives of God's people look like? Well, this is what he says. It's kind and compassionate. It's tender and giving. It's patient and persevering. It'll make your heart open and your conscience sensitive. Though you're busy, it'll cause you to slow down and pay attention. It'll cause you to expand the borders of your concern beyond you and yours. It'll cost you money, time, energy, and strength. It'll fill your schedule and complicate your life. It'll mean sacrifice. When you're both good and angry, you won't be content with your own comfort and ease. When you're both good and angry, you won't fill your life so full with meeting your own needs or with realizing your own dreams that you've got little time for being God's tool to meet the needs of others. You read that one again? Or was once enough? He goes on to say this, but all of this requires a war. Not a fight with people, not a fight with social movements, not a fight with political institutions. No, it's an internal fight. It's a fight for the heart. Sin turns all of us towards ourselves. It can make even those of us in ministry demanding, critical, cold, and self-focused. I can attest to that. Sin is, sin is self-absorbed and antisocial. Does this all seem too negative and harsh for you, he asks? Well, how much of your anger in the last few weeks has had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God? He writes, that question is very convicting for me. If we're ever going to be tools of the gracious anger of a righteous and loving God, we must begin by admitting the coldness and selfishness of our own heart. We must cry out for the rescue that only his grace can give. We must pray for seeing eyes and willing hearts. We must pray that we will be righteously angry. We must pray that a holy zeal for what's right and good would so fill our hearts that the evils greeting us daily would not be okay with us, lest us okay with them. We must pray that we be angry in this way until there's no reason to be angry anymore. And we must be vigilant, looking for every opportunity to express the righteous indignation of mercy, wisdom, grace, compassion, patience, perseverance, and love. Maybe parts of the story in 1 Samuel 11 get so disconnected from the reality of our hearts and our zeal because we've become too complacent with the reality of the battle in which we live and the enemy in which we face. 
Friends, the proclamation of the gospel is a proclamation to battle. But it's not just a proclamation to battle. It's the proclamation of victory. When the New Testament speaks of proclaiming the gospel with the images and languages of war and battle, you need to understand it only does that after God's king has delivered up himself to win the decisive battle against Satan's sin and death. The New Testament only talks about God's people proclaiming the gospel and engaging in this spiritual battle with the righteous weapons that God has given us by his spirit through his word after Jesus has won for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection the decisive victory over Satan's sin and death. Only after his deciding blood has been shed and our enemy has been defeated. The victory of our king, the sin-bearing, punishment-suffering, wrath-enduring work of Jesus in place of sinners like you and I, reconciling us to God, redeeming us from the captivity of sin by the payment of his own blood, cleansing us of our own defilement. It is the precursor to God's call for his people to go out proclaiming his victory to a watching world. This is the way it works. It's the way it's always worked. It's part of the promise God made in the beginning of the story. Back in the beginning, you might remember that God made a promise to Adam and Eve that a day would come where the head of the serpent would be bruised. We get to a place in the story in 1 Samuel chapter 11 where the king that God has appointed to lead his people goes before his people in battle. And Saul wins a decisive battle over the serpent, Nahash. But that battle only points us forward to a greater conflict and more thorough defeat of Satan and his works by our king, Jesus a victory that you and I now enjoy by grace through faith in him. A call he's now given us to go and proclaim this victory to the spiritually blind and captive. Saul could stand up before God's people in chapter 11, verse 13, and say, today God has worked salvation, but you and I, we get to stand up in this place this morning and go out from this place this morning proclaiming today is the day of salvation. That today, by the grace of God, through the faith in Jesus, You have the opportunity to come under the power of the gospel. You have the opportunity for your imagination and your worldview to be transformed. There is the opportunity for you to bow your knee in joyful submission to Jesus, your king. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of death to empty ways of living to powers and principalities that have exalted themselves in our hearts in opposition to Jesus. This gospel, this call to battle, this power that puts the enemies of our hearts to death is the same thing that makes us alive. Now, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, you and I, we we get to share in the fullness of his victory and all of its glory. And all who would receive him, all who would bow the knee to Jesus as king, you get the confident assurance from God to know that you're also going to get to share in the greatest moment of his glory when he returns in all of his splendor, king of kings and lord of lords, to bring to a final fulfillment all that God has promised. The battle is real. The enemy is real, but more real to our hearts may, and my prayer is, be the gospel and the grace of God to you through his king. No one understood, I think, the realities that we face better than Martin Luther. Martin Luther. 
Luther was famous for being so sensitive to the spiritual realities at war with his own heart that he was known to pick up his inkwell and throw it at the devil. To yell at the devil in his study. So sensitive was Luther to that which sought to destroy his, his soul. He'd find ways to go to battle with it. But then he'd pick that inkwell up and he'd dip that pen in it and he'd start to write. And he would write things like this. And I'm going to let Luther take us into a response to God's word. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. It's real. The battle is real. We will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. We pray for us together this morning. Father, we thank you that even in places and battles and stories that seem so far removed from the everyday, ordinary life of a 21st century church, you give us language and reminders of the realities of the, of the spiritual battles that we are engaged in, the wars that we were in, and we, we ask for your glory, for our good, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, wake us up to the reality of the war that is being waged the assurance of your church, the, the joy of your church, the confident hope we have in you. Wake us up to the realities of the battle that is being waged for the eternal destiny of men and women and children all throughout this city whose hearts are held captive to sin, whose hearts are blind to your glory in the face of your son. Help us to be reminded it's not a game. The next day isn't promised but you've sent us out with this proclamation of victory. Lord, work in us the confident assurance that comes by your spirit in you and in your word. Send us out as your people with a holy indignation for the injustice that brings so much harm, so much pain and so much suffering. Send us out with the, the righteous indignation and the, and the confidence to act on your word by your spirit and compassion and mercy and love. Lord, we want to see you for who you are, to know you fully and to enjoy you deeply. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do what's necessary in each of our hearts for that to be a reality. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.